Before we start, we want to let you know we've launched a Patreon page where supporters can receive perks like bonus episodes and exclusive content. Because Pop Fiction Women is our passion project, a place where we give women space to show up and offer in-depth analysis in the ways we're used to hearing about male creators and their characters. We delve into creativity and psychology with a dash of astrology, and we have so much fun doing it. Just two friends breaking down books, movies, and shows like Normal People, Fleabag, and I May Destroy You. Every single aspect of this podcast we do ourselves, from the preparation to the recording, from the editing to the social media promotion. So we're adding a Patreon platform because we want to keep making the show you love and hopefully expand it even further. So please consider becoming one of our most complicated fans and contributing on Patreon. To learn more, go to patreon.com forward slash pop fiction women. On Pop Fiction Women, we explore what it means to be a complicated woman. Tired of endless variations of leading men next to one-dimensional archetypes of women or strong female leads written by men that were essentially guys in women's bodies. We started this show to highlight the many female characters in entertainment worth exploring, as well as the women who dreamt them up. And now we're adding those creators to our conversations, discussing their process and passion in bringing these women to life. Welcome to Complicated Conversations. On these episodes, there's no spoilers. So come on, it's starting. We are so excited to chat with Allison Wood. Allison's essays have been published in the New York Times, Catapult, and Epiphany. She holds an MFA in fiction from New York University. Allison teaches creative writing and is the founder and editor-in-chief of Pigeon Pages, a New York City literary journal and reading series. Allison was a winner of the inaugural Breakout 8 Award from Epiphany Magazine and Authors Guild. Her stunning coming-of-age memoir, Being Lolita, is out now. Welcome to Pop Fiction Women. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. This is your story, really, as we were talking about being a memoir and very much one about finding your voice. So we'd love for you to tell our listeners a little bit about Being Lolita. Sure. Being Lolita is very much a book about power. In a narrative sense, in a plot sense, this book traces my relationship as a 17-year-old girl who is groomed and preyed upon by an English teacher in my high school, which quickly escalates into an incredibly abusive, emotionally, psychologically, at times violently, quote-unquote, relationship, and how I got out of that relationship, and also how that trauma has affected the rest of my life, for better and for worse. And also poking at ideas of the way that we stereotype women, the gender expectations, Mm -hmm. the novel Lolita by Nabokov. Mm -hmm. The teacher gave me Lolita, and he told me it was a beautiful story about love. And I didn't know what an unreliable narrator was at 17. Mm -hmm. So I believed him. And he very much used the novel Lolita as part of his seduction and part of his grooming process for me. It's also very much a story about writing and me becoming a writer and trying to use this experience as a way to impact young women in a far more positive way. And we loved it. We're going to talk about a lot of the things that that you just mentioned. Um, Oh, thank you so much. 
We are called pop fiction women. And although we sometimes cover nonfiction on our podcast episodes, as we mentioned for our author interviews, Being Lolita is our first memoir. And yes. I'm so um, honored. I know. And we're so excited. And so so there's deep something deeply personal, of course, in telling your own story. And I listened actually to a lot of this book on Audible. So oh. I actually even heard it through your own voice, which was yeah. very intimate and very well done, by the way. Oh, thank um, you. I recorded I, in the closet right behind me. Stop oh, it. You did not. Yeah, because That's it was amazing. so it right. was recorded during quarantine. Right. So we weren't able to use a studio. So this lovely sound engineer came matt cruz came to my apartment and set up a you know a studio in my closet so then i spent really about eight hours a day for a solid week in my closet with no light the door closed (laughs) only the light of the ipad that had you know the book headphones on and obviously matt the sound engineer listened the entire time and would like Mm. give me feedback and you know whatnot it was this very bizarre experience i mean literally being in a box reading this out loud reading your own words too it's just so must be so strange yeah it was very intense it was very intense another layer of intensity yes Oh my it gosh. does. And it I comes come back. I might have to come back to that closet thing because yeah. Kate oh. and I have talked about the fact that <laughs> I have had some really breakdown, breakthrough moments in, in a closet. But in a ahead. closet. Yes. yes. Wow. yes. We should definitely come back to that because <laughs> um, I know what she's talking about. So anyway, I was going to say that I understand that you knew you were going to write this story soon after the relationship with the teacher ended, and you even knew the title. So we'd love to hear more about that. And did you always know it would be a memoir? And how did what you think you were going to write change, if at all, from what ultimately got published? You know, I studied fiction in my MFA, so I really wanted to use the building blocks of fiction in how I told this story. But I felt very firmly that this was not a novel. This was a memoir. I always knew that. I got a lot of suggestions. I'll say softly suggestions to make it a novel. And I was like, no, 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 no. You are missing the entire point of this because there are so many novels and so many sort of fantasy stories and, you know, ranging from porn to other books that are very much romanticizing and sexualizing this teacher-student power imbalance Mm -hmm. and the larger power imbalance that we have in our culture. And I really did not want to engage in that. I wanted to tell an alternate story, which is something that in some ways hasn't really been told that much. Yes. There are a few examples of other memoirs that have done this work. Excavation by Wendy Ortiz and spe- uh, specifically is just gorgeous and brilliant and brutal, but it's so good. But for the most part, this story hasn't been told as a memoir. So I knew this was going to be a memoir from the get-go in that weird sort of artistic... Like you just know. <laughs> you just know. Yeah. Yeah. The title being Lolita just came to me and I was like, yes, that is the book. I just knew. But years ago, when I was first thinking about writing the book, I hadn't fully processed what had happened to me and what had been done to me. And I still hung on to this, of course, 
you know, you, you want to believe that your life is a love story, that your life is not about trauma and abuse and being victimized. It took a long time. It took years of therapy, of just hard work on my part, yeah. of really asking tough questions about my life. And also in a lot of ways, teaching. Because when I began teaching, in particular, I teach undergraduates at NYU. And some of these students are 18, 19. It's an intro class, so I get a lot of freshmen. Sure. So they are barely older than I was yeah. when this had happened to me. And having them literally right in front of me yeah. really drove home to me that, wow, I was not a yeah. mature, full-fledged adult. And that is not to discount the agency or intelligence or no. anything of these mm -hmm of these young people, but you know, they've never had a real, most of them have never had a full-time job. They've never had to pay rent. Some of them mm -hmm. have never cooked their own meals or yeah. done their own laundry. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, some yeah. have never had sex or yeah. had any sort sure. of like adult relationships. So seeing this literally really made me face how young I was and how the story that I thought I had had was just simply not true. And that was part of the abuse and manipulation. Yeah, which brings me beautifully to my next question. When writing a memoir, I hear a lot of interviewers or moderators call the author brave. <laughs> right? Okay, mm -hmm. so most recently, yep. I heard it a lot with Glennon Doyle's Untamed, yep. with Stephanie Dandler's Stray, yep. Christy Tate's forthcoming group. Yep. I, I'm a fiction writer, so mm -hmm. I'm never quite sure what they mean when they're saying the writer is brave. And for some reason, I find it slightly condescending, Yeah, <laughs> maybe a little insulting. I don't know why. But yet, because yet, there is something extremely brave about writing mm -hmm. the pure truth of your story of this moment in your life and doing it so openly and honestly and really excavating all of that pain and, and processing it in a way that can be on a page for people to read. So... I wanted to know what you thought about this. Have you been called brave? How do you feel about this? Yeah, I have very similar complicated feelings about brave <laughs> because I do think that it's coded because yeah. we don't say this to male memoirists. We don't talk to men who tell their stories about how brave they are. No, we say this to women memoirists. We say this yeah. in particular to women who write about tra about traumatic things. Mm -hmm. And I think it is very much coded in, just as you said, bringing up the, oh, this is so brave for you to do because it's not something you're supposed to do. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's part of why I find it a bit condescending. Again, because it's just, you don't say that to, to men. You would never call a male memoirist brave. Okay. You, you just say that to ladies and their lady book. <laughs> <laughs> you know I just yeah that really yeah. gets under my skin at the same time though now that I have published a memoir that is yeah. incredibly personal and vulnerable and I, I don't think anyone could say that I pulled punches or that I wasn't fully honest even in ways that were incredibly not flattering or shameful to me I really tried to just lay it all out there and to tell the whole story at the same time, I'm realizing that like, oh, it is, it is very brave of me to do this. Um, You're right. <laughs> yeah. So it's, yeah. and I know that when people say that, I, people are, I don't believe that people are thinking of it in the coded, uh, <laughs> condescending yeah. way. I don't, yeah. I don't believe that anyone calls me, for instance, brave in a way that's like meaning to diminish the work. Right. Right. 
but I think one of my other issues is also is that that's so much commenting on the content of yes. the work versus, oh, wow, this is a really beautiful book. Yes. Um, you really rendered this very clearly. Right. I felt connected. Um, yeah. I mean, I hear from readers every day, which is honestly one of the best parts of this. Yeah. And almost all of my readers that I hear from are women, mm. almost entirely women, which I love. Uh, none of them are being inappropriate. They're all being like very lovely yes, and just sending yes. me messages and DMs and emails, just basically saying, thank you so much for writing this. This is so beautiful. I found this to be so illuminating and I don't feel alone. I feel mm -hmm. seen. Mm -hmm. I feel yeah. understood. Yeah. And it's not always so much. Sometimes it is. They say, a lot of them actually say, like, I was in a similar relationship mm -hmm. with a teacher, with a coach, mm -hmm. something like that. But oftentimes it's also just because I think so many of the experiences I really tried to write about were very universal. Yes. Um, oh, yeah. Feeling so insecure about your body as a teenager, mm -hmm. trying to figure out what your power was when all yes. the messages are, well, it's just sex. Mm -hmm. So trying to navigate a lot of these things. And also the relationship became very abusive. And I think that's also unfortunately all too common. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. And I've realized that it really is brave to do this because if not, I would not be hearing from so many people right. every single day. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and the funny thing is I only hear from a couple guys, but the kind messages are always exactly the same. They are always very long and <laughs> very long. The women keep it short and sweet, but the guys' messages are always very long. Wow. And talking about how they had never thought about it this way. Mm -hmm. And I really changed their life. Mm -hmm. And thank you so much. And until yeah. then, I thought this, this, that, like going oh. through their narrative <laughs> journey. Yes, yes. <laughs> Defending themselves. Defensive. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's like, mm -hmm. what? Like, yeah. Yeah. oh my gosh. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh. You know, some, oh. something you just said made me realize, <laughs> I think the the really brave part to me is the the doing the work like mm -hmm. clearly the work that you did on yourself to mm -hmm. look at this whole situation what it meant how it repeated itself what you could do to stop it all of that that to me is the really brave part but right and that yeah. happens off the page yeah 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 because mm -hmm. the thing is i'm a deep believer so i teach nonfiction all the time and one of my first recommendations when I, when a student is writing, especially if it's a memoir, like a long, a big project about trauma, my first recommendation is like, well, you got to get yourself in a therapy because mm, yeah. if you are trying to, I mean, to be clear, writing is an incredibly therapeutic process. I fully believe in the power of writing as a way to deal with things, to reckon with things. I firmly yeah. believe that. But then when you're writing for an audience, writing with yeah. an eye towards publication, towards making this a book. The story has to make sense at that point. Exactly. You need to be able right. to step back and take edits, take tough edits, yes. to like ask the hard questions of like, yes. is this book working? And if yeah. you are still actively processing this, you can't take that space. Wow. You know, yes. you. I don't believe that you can accurately render things if you're still trying to figure out what it means people always talk about catharsis I think that's yeah. also why people use the word brave because they sort of want to make something positive from this mm. terrible experience okay so there's always this expectation I mean so many interviews talk to me interviewers talk to me about like well did you have a moment of catharsis when writing the book and I'm like no 
Yeah. No, writing this book was awful. Yeah. It was a horrible, yes. horrible yes. experience to write this yeah. book. Right. Yeah. Uh, catharsis is not something, I think we want to believe that catharsis happened or like they feel healed or, yeah. Look, you're so brave. Yeah. Because it makes them feel better right. about the subject, mm-hmm. about what the story was, which is yeah. disturbing. Right. But I don't think that's really what happens if you're writing. Uh, I don't want to say if you're writing a good book, but that's work that has to happen off the page. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And by the way, the narrative, I mean, ma- making a book is creating a narrative with a beginning, middle and end, but yes. that's not life. So that, yeah. that, that person who's processed trauma still has to continue to go on with their life. Oh, yeah. and, and it doesn't have to look the same way, but that it's not the it's not the end they want everyone no. wants to put a nice ending on it oh you right. have your catharsis like you're fine now you're better what does that yes. even mean i'm a human being in yeah. this shitty world like <laughs> yeah and that's why i mean in like using the tools of fiction to write a memoir you need to have a plot you need to have fully developed characters yeah. you need to have a scene yeah. you need to yeah. sure. have a sense of beginning middle end structure yeah. Yeah. and even the eye is mm. a narrative construction the I narrator, it's not yes, me. Right. I mean, it's, it's me as a construction. It's still me as fiction because I cannot be on a page. Right. Right. You know? So yes. I really feel like good memoir is so much embracing and really leaning into the power of fiction and the tools of fiction. But right. again, I've been calling it something like brave catharsis that really, and again, we only talk about the with lady memoirs. Of and course. Their, yes. Their lady right. book. Yes. That's again sort of sidestepping that work and being like, oh, I feel so bad by saying you're brave or you've had catharsis. That makes me feel better about the awful thing that you've been through. Yes. 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 Exactly. Wow. It's exactly. so true. Yeah. So yeah. speaking of books, let's talk about Lolita, Navaka yeah. classic. Mm-hmm. You you note early on in uh, Being Lolita that the name Dolores, which is Lolita's yeah. real name in the novel, mm-hmm. in Latin translates to words like pain, suffering, sadness, and mm-hmm. sorrow. And yet in our society, the Lolita myth is one of the sexy girl who traps men and suffers for it. You know, the powerful seductress. In reality, she's a victim. Yeah. And when did you come to realize this truth about the Lolita story? And then why did you want to structure your memoir like Nabokov's novel? Well, I think I had my first sort of beginnings of understanding of what the real Lolita story is and thus who Lolita really was in that that psychology of literature class I took when I was in college. I was probably about 20 when I took it. And Professor Caldwell? Is that that? Yes, Yes. Professor Caldwell. Yes. It's funny, I always forget people's fake names. Right, (laughs) yes. I can imagine that. Of course. What did I call her? Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Because I I didn't use real names, obviously. Yes. yes. In Professor Caldwell's psychoanalysis of literature class, Mm -hmm. we read Lolita. And I was ready to go in, raring to go. I was like, oh, yeah, I know what this book is about. It's about a love story. It's about maybe you could say it's about like seducing the reader with language. But that's what the story is. And she was like, no, this 
<laughs> she was like, no, this is a story about rape and obsession. Yeah. And, you know, Lolita is not the powerful person that Humbert suggests she is. This is an unreliable narrator. This is all from his point of view and he's a predator and just sort of laid it out there. Mm-hmm. And I remember the metaphor she gave, which I will never forget, was the because pizza? it was just so, yes, it was just yes, so effective. So it was so good. Yeah, she was like, look, you know, if if a teenager chooses what they get to eat, they will eat pizza every day, but then they will die of scurvy. (laughs) Teenagers are not equipped to make the best decisions for themselves. That moment when I read it, I was like, oh my gosh, it's it's such a great, simple way of saying what is so hard for most people to understand. Yeah, Um, and very accessible to a college student as well. Yeah. Who orders pizza a lot. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Oh, yes. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So that was that was back when I was 19 or 20. And that was when I sort of began having that, huh, maybe this book and maybe my life (laughs) is not what I thought it was. But really, it was a very long process to sort of unwrap all of those things. Because part of it is that every layer I sort of took off just revealed more and more pain and Mm. awful things to have to realize, oh, I was not this empowered young person making choices I was being preyed upon I was being groomed I was being victimized and that's Mm -hmm. not some that's hard to face and to accept and then to process and so that just took time that just took time Mm -hmm. and the choice about structuring the book so I think I think structuring any book is tip is difficult for the most part I think Many people struggle with structure. Also for essays or short stories, structure's hard. Yes. And I was really not sure how I was going to structure this book. I knew I was going to write it. I was working on it, but I didn't really have a, I was like, I don't know. It's going to, it's going to come out. I didn't write it in order. I'm not instinctually a write in order person when it comes to essays or memoir. And I think that's partially because memory isn't linear. Mm. Memory isn't chronological. Yes. You know, at any moment you could be in a, in a now, but you could, you know, sort of go back to 20 years earlier in your mind and be someplace else. And memory works like that. It's not necessarily strictly chronological, but I knew that I wanted a more, a more structured book. Again, sort of leaning on this, this, the tools of fiction. And I was reading Lolita for, I don't know, the fucking 50th time. (laughs) (laughs) I've read Lolita a lot and it just hit me. I was like, oh my God, it's right here. Right. (laughs) It just hit me. I was like, wait a minute. Like I can just use this. So for both books, part one is very much the grooming process, the sort of selection of victim, all of that. The break between parts one and part two for both books is when we uh, sleep together for the first time. For Lolita, it was she's raped. For me, it was the day after I graduated. I was not raped, but it was still not a positive experience Mm -hmm. uh, by any stretch of the imagination. Mm -hmm. Um, And then part two is very much the story of trying to not get caught. Mm -hmm. And both of us, I mean, Dolores and myself, we both we both ended up going on these road trips up to Ithaca, which is so funny because my teacher had gone to Cornell 
Nabokov had taught at Cornell for a long time. A lot of things, a lot of people think that Beardsley in Lolita is actually Ithaca um, in upstate New York. Yeah. So it was just this funny little like, whoa, it's so close. It's like, it's right there. Like I just have to sort of like reach out and grab it. But spoiler alert, at the end of Lolita, she's dead. (laughs) And I am not dead. So I was like, well, I get a part three, yes. <laughs> which, yeah. is, which is the rest Perfect. of my life. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. It, once I, once I thought of it, I was like, oh, this is great. Um, yeah. And it's yeah. so funny because like with memoir, so this is something that I think is very different than fiction with memoir. If you're writing, if you're talking about other memoirists about this and you're like, wow, this awful thing happened and it happened to break into this, they're like, oh my God, that's so great. Even though you're talking about right. this horribly yes. traumatic, yes. Thing, like, that's, right. that's gold. Yes, <laughs> it's uh, so funny. Oh yeah. my god! So like, oh, yeah. Thank you. I exactly. Think. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's so fantastic. He just he just happened to take me on road trips. Right. Right. <laughs> well, sometimes raping me, it's great. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah. I know. I know. Oh my god! Shallow's humor. <laughs> yeah. Literally. Yeah. yeah. So you're talking about a lot of. What I wanted to to talk about too, choice, mm-hmm. illusion of choice, yep. choices that become patterns, yep. limiting choices. And you talk about a lot of these things in the book. And I want to touch on a, a few moments. So early in the in the story, it's on page 16, you write about your, your choice to return to Hunt High School saying, I wish I could reach back through space and time and make a different decision. And then I wonder about things like fate, how sometimes things are just chosen for you, how women are chosen to endure suffering. And your outlook at that point in this book is pretty grim. You're, you go yeah. on to say that it seems that no matter how active or passive a girl is, she is still doomed. But of course, this story corrects that point of view or, or it evolves. And later on in the book, as you're counseling teenagers, which you've spoken about a little bit, you share a moment where you're looking at one of the woman, one of the girls, Nicole, and you realize with a, with the help of a bolt of lightning from a storm outside, <laughs> you have this moment and you go, oh, I was a child. And again, later, you're at a writing workshop in Oregon and you're seeing this pattern for the first time and the way you do have choice here like meaningful choice and choice to change and make different different choices and you you can't go back to high school and choose differently the way you kind of position in the beginning of the book but yet in a way you actually are by seeing it all this way and then saying to yourself like you do I I can do this differently now I can see it and I can change it you know, uh, so part of me wonders in my own life if I had avoided, you know, like X person or or X thing that happened mm-hmm. to me. I wonder if something similar would have happened anyway. Can you yeah. avoid these things? Like what? I, sometimes I wonder, like, is this just the lesson for my lifetime? And can you yeah. avoid that? And would you even want to? You know, mm-hmm. this is, you know. So I want to, this is a very open question for you to go wherever you want with it, but I just, you thread this these ideas of choice when they're just illusions and when they are actually real throughout the whole book. And it really is so beautifully rendered in your arc. That was obviously something you were conscious of. It was, you know, I don't know. 
about yeah. being exactly. I still, I'm still not sure, you know, yeah. was I, was this all meant to happen? But in a research point of way, because I did domestic violence work with teenagers a lot, intimate partner violence, things like that. I did, I did that for a long time in my nonprofit work and I loved it. And one of the most disturbing, but also super logical yes. um, things that I learned was two things. One is that one of the reasons it's so important to try and have young people, teenagers making healthy relationship choices, mm. um, thinking about things like consent, red flags in a relationship, thinking about control, manipulation, abuse, like recognizing the signs and not getting into those relationships or leaving quickly is because whether we like it or not, those first relationships very much create a mold for the way that we engage in romantic and sexual relationships for the rest of our lives. Now, of course, this is a pattern that can be changed again with work, with therapy, with, you know, being very conscious, but it's, it's a mold and you will then always be sort of falling into it or you have to work very hard to break it, to, Mm -hmm. you know, break that pattern, which makes a lot of sense when you think about it. And it's also scary. Yes. Also very scary. Yeah. um, Because so many young people are not making great choices. (laughs) Me as a great example of one. Me too. Um, (laughs) We're not reading my book, but (laughs) but I'm just going to have to chime in there and go me. I mean, there were so many times in the book, especially in the beginning when I was first writing it, I was very, very critical of my 17 and 18 year old self. I was so angry at her. I was like, you idiot. Couldn't you have like figured this out? You were so stupid. Like I was genuinely angry at myself Mm -hmm. and rereading my journals. That's like wildly painful. I do not recommend that unless you have to, because like reading your teenage journals, is just like, Oh my God. Like, yeah. yeah. I would physically be uncomfortable doing it. And even now, like I get all this like tension in my shoulders, like, Oh God. (laughs) But the thing is, as I, continued reading them and worked on the project and uh, really engaged in this. And of course, you know, then read the notes from the teacher, the letters, Mm -hmm. the yearbook, all of these things really sort of like leaned into that. I, by the end, really my own narrative journey was that I then became very empathetic towards 17 year old Allison and I became very protective and very like she was just doing her best (laughs) she was just trying Uh, (laughs) you know I really sort of like feel like I understood myself in a way that I hadn't before so I would not call that catharsis at all but I do think that that was like one of the positive I mean I think there were lots of positive things about writing the book but that was one of them that I was really I feel I am much more fond of 17 year old Allison, but at times in the beginning, I did want to like reach through time and just like shake her and be like, what are you doing? Yes. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but then I think the other disturbing piece of research is that the number one predictor of future victimization is prior victimization. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. That's the number mm-hmm. one way to know if you're going to be victimized again. Have you been victimized in the past? Mm-hmm. And that's like a horrible pattern creator. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And in my case, it was due to PTSD in that what happens with PTSD 
is that you are constantly on high alert and it feels like danger all the time. You know, you can have flashbacks, you can have trouble sleeping, you know, you're like in this hyper alert state. So then with that happening, you're unable to discern real danger versus, Mm -hmm. oh, I'm just freaking out for no reason because of that. So that makes it easy for you to be to find yourself in a dangerous situation because you aren't able to trust your own instincts. You aren't able to trust your own signals because they're, you know, they're messed up. Right. So I think that was one thing that really affected me for a long time in a less trauma specific way, just in the men I was choosing to be with. (laughs) I found myself completely unconsciously. This is something that I only see now. I was oftentimes choosing to be in a relationship that was secretive, that Mm. was based in it being a secret or Mm. there being some sort of strong power imbalance because that was what was familiar. Again, that idea of like creating that mold, like, oh, this is love, like Mm. someone keeping a secret, keeping us a secret. That means that they love me, not that they're married or that they're cheating on their girlfriend. (laughs) It means that they love me, (laughs) you know, and it's like, well, that's not true. Yeah. (laughs) But that's the kind of thing that can just sort of take time. And I'm just so grateful that I've figured that out um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> finally. Yeah. And yeah, that, that experience in Oregon, it was actually at Tin House Workshop in Portland, Oregon. Yeah, I, yeah, I figured everybody knows yes. that. Yeah. They're yeah. like, oh, huh, week-long yeah. workshop in Oregon. I wonder which yeah. one that could be. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. So I think that... I think that whether we like it or not, we make patterns, we pattern make in our lives. Mm -hmm. And I feel like as a memoirist, my job is to try to recognize them, tease them out, try to make those pattern connections for myself and for the reader. And I think that can be, I think that can be a very powerful thing because that can be very illuminating, both like on a, in an on the page way for the reader, but also Mm -hmm. internally, you know, Mm -hmm. I think figuring that out for yourself can really change your life once you're able to recognize what's happening and the choices you've been making and see how they are connected yes that's when you can break the pattern and again that's that same sort of idea of like doing the work so you can step back yeah yeah because part of the painful work of that i mean i'm talking like emotionally personally Mm. is just to be able to step back and be like huh so what has been happening that makes me unhappy Mm. where do i fit in Yes. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. this is a silly example, but did either of you watch Sex in the City? Yes. Okay, so remember I... when Carrie has the goes to therapy and she ends up saying, like, I don't understand why I'm in these all, all these bad relationships. Like it just keeps happening. Mm-hmm. And then the therapist or somehow that comes up like, Well, have you noticed that you're choosing all of you're these in now? Them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're, that the uh-huh. thing in common is you're choosing them. Yeah. <laughs> and it was yeah. like and of course, she oh. never goes back to therapy because no, that would, of course not. Right, because, because that that would ruin the entire point of the show. Right. Correct. <laughs> mm-hmm. But you know, it. Really but outside is. of the show, that's what happens. People oh, are yeah. faced with, and again, back to what I was saying about brave doing the work. People, when confronted with that realization, just don't want to. They, they don't want to see just it. Just run and, away. Yes, yeah. and then that oh, therapist. Yeah 
made me think that. So I don't go back oh, yeah. to that therapist ever again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Your know, fault. Denial is more than a river in Egypt. Yes. And it's, and I don't think that's, that's an example of something that I think isn't just true for women. I think that's also true for men. I think that's true for everybody. Yes. yes. It's really hard. condition. Yeah. Definitely. And it can be, and I think that's something really universal. It can be really hard to face, huh? What has been my role in yeah. the things that have, caused pain or you know made me unhappy and that's that's tough work nothing like this factually happened to me like Mm -hmm. the the specifics but yet there was so much universal and certainly I experienced a lot of the same molding and lessons of trauma secrets were big for me I remember asking a friend of mine I was like if a woman has no secrets what does she have and I'm like now I'm like a healthy life yeah oh no totally I mean there really was this moment for me at that workshop where, you know, I was staying, a good friend of mine and I were splitting a room so, yeah. to save money. Yeah. And I really had, I literally said aloud, what is it about me that lets men know I will keep their secret? Yeah. Like oh. having like this huge moment of being yeah. like, what is it? What am I putting out there yeah. that tells a guy? Oh yeah, I can yeah. fuck around with her and I don't need to worry about yeah. her telling my girlfriend, wife, fiance, oh, yeah. whatever. Yeah. And that was like a tough moment. Yeah. Of yeah. Being like, whoa, what am I doing? And then of course, where did this come from? Yes. Because that's not the kind of person I want to be. That's yeah. not a healthy relationship. Yeah. That's not a relationship that brings me joy. Yeah. You right. know? Yeah. Um, and so, by the way, yeah. life doesn't unfold as beautifully as your book does. And so right. you don't always see those connections, <laughs> yeah. right? You might yeah. even say, you know, that guy was younger than me. How this can't be mm-hmm. a, but no, that's you can, still the same pattern. Oh, I work. just keep getting lied to. Yeah. I just yeah. have that locked. And yeah. it's like, well, you know, yes, 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 yeah, that and, is yes. true. And yeah. exactly. Yes. And yes. And yeah. And the and comes back to you. Yes. <laughs> yes. yes. Yeah. So on this podcast, we like to say that we're engaged in the simple but subversive act of taking women seriously <gasps> because There's no lady books here. Oh, I love it. I love it. No, because popular entertainment hasn't always portrayed women with all these human facets. Instead, reducing women to one-dimensional archetypes. And we're usually discussing this in the context of fictional protagonists, but something you posted on your Instagram seems to strike the same nerve. You invited people to post pictures of themselves in the red shape heart glasses, like the cover of your book. And and you said to do so in solidarity against, yes, Oh, I love it. I know. Now I have sunglasses and glasses on my head because I am that cool. Those are very cool. Yes. Um, Yeah. So you said to, quote, in solidarity against the flat, problematic stereotypes of victims, women and full ex who have been sexually assaulted, raped, groomed, threatened, or silenced are more than what a predator has done to us. We are strong, complex, and beautiful. We can still be sexy and filled with love. So to us, that just means victims, of course, are more than just one thing. And being Lolita is 
I don't know, for us is in good company of, of books, things like this. So fiction, nonfiction, and some in between. Like we're thinking of Maggie's story and Three Women, mm-hmm. um, My Dark Vanessa, yep. Chanel Miller's Know My Name, oh, yeah. Luckiest Girl Alive, and the HBO series that we are obsessed with. And recap, I May Destroy You. Yep. But these are all brilliant, nuanced, but very different depictions of sexual assault or rape, abuse, or issues of consent. So it seems to me that, you know, complex portrayals of victims are emerging, but Mm -hmm. not enough. And I just wanted to get your views on this. I completely agree. I think, I think, again, this goes back to, we want happy, nice, stories from ladies, in particular lady memoirists. Like, mm-hmm. we, we want to hear about the good things. You know, mm-hmm. you're you're a nice girl. Tell me about the nice things in your life. Mm-hmm. Which is, I think, again, sort of why, bringing back to your original point, like why something like the work that I've done is called Brave. Because mm-hmm. it's new, unusual. That's not what we do or we're supposed mm-hmm. to do. So I think, I think a lot of people want to believe that we're in this post Me Too era, that sort of everything's fine. We talked about this. We're over it. We can move on. And I'm like, yeah, I don't think so. No. I don't think so at all. Mm. But I do think that my book is in good company. I think that my book is coming out at a time when there are far more wonderful books really leaning into the complexity of these stories and the Mm -hmm. complexity of women's lives. And something I'm really proud of is that while my book is very much centered around trauma, I think that I really made an effort to show how, well, yes, it can impact a life. It can, you know, I mean, it it still impacts me today, but it doesn't have to define me. Right. Mm -hmm. I really tried to make that distinction. I really, I tried to. Yes, you You do. Yes. Yeah. And I think there are lots of other wonderful books out there doing similar work. I think that the memoir Long Live the Tribe of Fatherless Girls by T. Kara Madden is wonderful. And she mm-hmm. really leans into the complexities of growing up queer and being sexually assaulted and just her life. Mm-hmm. And it's such a beautiful book. Mm-hmm. I think Luster by oh, yeah. by Raven Leilani. She's actually a good friend. Actually, T. Kara and Raven are both good friends of mine. You know, just to reveal, sorry. I I also love their books. Right, sure. (laughs) Yeah. But I think Luster is such a wonderful, complex, very real, very visceral story of this young woman trying to figure stuff out. Mm -hmm. And I just think it's so beautifully rendered. And again, like talking about like the complexity, the the complex stories of women, Mm -hmm. it's not... It's not always, you know, everything's great. It's not always everything is awful. I am broken. Right. I feel like that's sort of how we yes. like to. Yeah. Yes. Those uh, are the two boxes you get. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I also think with memoir, there's this expectation, with women's memoir, there's this expectation of sort of like you were saying earlier, like having it all wrapped up in a bow. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes with with memoirs around trauma, unless you're ending with the I am broken then you are ending with being married and look, I'm so right. happy. I have a man. Everything's fine. Maybe right. I have kids, right. Right. <laughs> you know, right. it's all coming around. It's all right. fine. Right. And I, I'm not married, but I do think I'm very happy. And I think I have a lot of love in my life and it's just not from a dude. 
Right, know? sure. And yeah. by the way, lots of married people aren't happy. <laughs> I'm just going to say. Yes, that doesn't, I... uh, proves nothing. That proves okay. no part of the outcome. It is that. very much true. It is very much true. I think Want by Lynn Steger Strong, is, mm. which is a novel that just came out earlier this summer. I yes. think that's another great example of a book that sort of leaning into the complexity of women. love that, that yeah. these are, I think that the, we've, the audience has probably always been there, mm-hmm. but something about you know, whatever it is about the gatekeepers just weren't, they they didn't think they'd make money or, you know, whatever it is. But that is something that we've seen real progress on. There's still more to be, there's still a lot more to be done, but the part, an important part of it is getting those stories out there and realizing, and I mean, Kate and I say this all the time, we're both women and yet we're not the same. We don't have the same no. traumas. We don't have the same <laughs> desires. We don't have the same of course. impulses. So, uh, you know, we need just more stories, not just the yeah. woman's story. You know? Okay. Yeah. So. I completely agree. Yeah. And I think so much of women's writing, both fiction and nonfiction, is we're being able to tell these complicated stories and... I'm so yes. excited about that. And I'm yes. so excited that being Lolita is in this sort of era of women getting to tell these really complicated stories. Oh. I'm so proud of that. Yes, me too. And I, I will it. say I've read and watched a lot of what Kate has just said. And yours really unlocked new things for me. It really did. Oh, because, yeah. And I think it was the function of the memoir and the memoir with time. Because Chanel, yeah. Chanel Miller's book is also memoir. and mm-hmm. But it's different from yours, obviously. But yours had had the space of of yeah. a fuller arc and a fuller mm-hmm. life to talk mm-hmm. about those lessons, even though you relate them back to that one thing. And I don't know, it just it really unlocked brand new things for me. So again, we don't need just one story. No. We need all of <laughs> yeah. them. We need all we need of them. Many stories. Yeah. yeah. And told from many points of yes. view. And yes. that's not just different writers, that's different places in time yes you know I'm very aware that if I had written this book 10 years ago 15 years ago it might have been an okay book but I don't think it would have been as good of a book or a book that I am as proud of as I am now because I just didn't have the perspective and I think that's also something unique with memoir which is that with memoir there's point of view and point of telling Mm. so point of view is like how in part one and part two I was very close to 17 and 18-year-old Allison. I tried really hard to lean into who I was, what I thought, how I interpreted my world. And then point of telling is sort of like 36-year-old Allison popping in here or there and trying to sort of make those connections and, you know, illuminating things and giving a little sort of big picture moment here or there. And that's part of the power of memoir because that's so much harder to do in fiction. Yes. Like if I had written that as a novel, it really would have mostly been part one and part two. Yeah. Right. Right. But I was like, no, part of the power of the story is me being able to look back and make those connections to pattern make, to do all of that work. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I believe Mm -hmm. that. Yeah. So we obviously live in a society that sexualizes young girls and tells them from an early age that, you know, pretty is sort of a superpower, you know, but it's, it's clearly a false narrative, a dangerous sense of security. And I loved what you wrote on page 36. You said, prettiness is complicated. Not acknowledging this feels like a lie of omission, sidestepping something important. 
but being pretty didn't make me any more or less vulnerable. Being pretty didn't keep me from being suicidal when I was 15 and 16. It didn't stop me from making bad choices about where I placed my trust. It didn't make it didn't make me easier prey, but maybe it made me stand out. At 17, I was deeply insecure and convinced I was not capable of being loved and also certain that my body was my only possible source of power. I held both of these beliefs tightly, one in each hand. One did not discount the other. I knew that my only choice of getting what I wanted more than anything to be noticed, to feel like I was in control of some part of my life was through being attractive. Mm. And that just really, it's really hit me. It is something I think about a lot. I know this is going to sound strange, but growing up, like I never wanted to be pretty. And it certainly wasn't like a conscious thing. I was not that self-aware, I can assure you. But, Mm -hmm. But somehow I just knew intuitively that it was dangerous thing to be valued for. I, that it would overshadow other things that I was good at, other talents, other attributes. But I also joke that I just got lucky. I mean, I really wasn't that pretty as a girl. I mean, it just wasn't, (laughs) it really wasn't what I was I don't know if I believe that, but believe me, believe me. It was not. I'm shaking my head. I don't believe There were the pretty girls. (laughs) You know what I mean? I was not one of them. Um, I was the smart girl. I mean, that's that's Mm -hmm. literally what I was known as, right? So I don't have a daughter. Um, Corinne does. I only have sons. But I think about this with like my nieces or a lot of friends with daughters, how sometimes maybe it's easier when you're not the pretty, quote unquote, pretty girl. But regardless, I just think how as a society, we just keep failing girls, right? And inadvertently reinforcing these stereotypes. And I'm just curious, like, do you think we've made any progress in this area or are we like one step forward, two steps back? I I don't know. It's really something I do think about a lot. I think prettiness is a bomb. It can be the source of power, but it's also, it can also explode sort of at any time. It's very dangerous. Mm -hmm. It's sort of you know, it's hard to control. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I think you're absolutely right in that prettiness is incredibly complicated. It is both a source of power, also a source of danger and mm-hmm. damage. Because I think you're right. I think when a girl is pretty, and I think that's still the case now, I really don't yeah. think things with that have gotten much better. I don't. Because mm-hmm. I think I think we still define women by their looks. All women. And I think with young women, if you're pretty, that's who you are. I mean, we still talk about little girls like, you know, oh, she's so pretty. Oh, she's so cute. Mm -hmm. And then that's, Mm -hmm. and you talk about boys a little bit differently. And I think it's also far bigger in that, in the sense that we don't have a whole lot of super powerful women role models who are not based upon their looks, who are not models, actresses things like that. We've still not had a woman president. Yeah. Mm. We have a woman vice president candidate, which I'm so excited about, but yes. you know, we've not had a woman president. There's not a whole lot of women CEOs. Right. When you think about the men or the people who are making choices in our world, it's white men. It's mm. not women. And so, yeah, I think, I think especially for young women, prettiness is really complicated because we are very clearly told prettiness is important Prettiness will get you not only a guy, which is, you know, the so important, goal. <laughs> the ultimate goal, of yeah. course, 
um, but that'll get you noticed. That'll get you attention. There's still research that shows that attractive candidates are more likely to get the job. I mean, you know, and then of course, when women get to a certain age, they are no longer pretty. They are, they disappear. They become invisible. There's that wonderful Amy Schumer sketch. Yes. Yes. (laughs) My last (laughs) day. Your last. Can Can I swear? Yes, yes, you can. Oh, absolutely. It, it, okay, it's your last fuckable day. Yeah. <laughs> it's Julia Louise Dreyfus and Tina Fey. Yes. And they're all yeah. like, yeah, we're celebrating the last we fuckable are. day. <laughs> it's such a good such a good sketch. Yeah. Um, but I also think it's so true. Yes. It's like, yeah. oh God, when yeah. that happens, they're just, you know. Then... I mean, even it, we don't matter anymore. That's I mean, even right. mm-hmm. even with Kamala, who's, you know, I think a very powerful woman, yeah. there's still so much discussion about what she uh, wears. Right. And yeah, I mean, come on. But I and think who she slept with 20 years ago. Who she slept I mean, with, yeah. Never and once I, heard that about a man. Oh, it's mm-hmm. awful. Yeah. And I think, mm-hmm. but I think that when I, I think going back to like teenage girls, when I say that prettiness is a bomb, I think it also means that it's also something very dangerous to acknowledge. It suggests mm-hmm. that you're a narcissistic, you've got, you know, you, you're full of yourself to be able to say that. Right. It was funny, like, when I was writing about that, I think I opened the chapter some, saying something like I was pretty in high school. Mm-hmm. And that was like a really hard sentence to write. Yeah. Even yeah. like being 36, you know, this is 20 years ago. Right. But having to acknowledge that, it felt weird. And yeah. it felt like that was something that I would be judged on. Like, oh my God, how full of herself is she that she thought she was pretty in high school? Right. But it's like, I have pictures. I'm like, yeah, I was pretty. No, that's just, yeah. just, just a yeah. thing. It's just a thing. It's, yeah. just, it's a fact. You know, like I was, yeah. I was a pretty girl in high school. Yeah. But the thing is, I did not think of myself that way. I did not treat myself that way. I did not expect others to treat. Well, and of course, like the, your treatment has nothing to do with your attractiveness. But I think it really did. The fact that I was unaware of that, or I not only was I unaware, I uh, was convinced I was not attractive, and so I worked to work against that. But of course, in this subtle way that you know, you you have to look like you're not trying. You know, the the no makeup makeup kind of. Yes. yes. <laughs> Do you know what yeah, I mean? I was going to say, yeah. I think the most progress we've made is in expanding the definition of pretty. But we're still yeah. care about pretty and we still care about and pretty is is a female attribute. It's an attribute yes. given to women for some reason. Yeah. Ladies. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes, yes. Very. So yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. So there's I guess the the one step forward is expanding that idea, but still it matters. It matters. Oh yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, it matters so much. I mean, it's just it's something women, and again, it's sort of going back to this objectification of women's bodies, the sexualization mm-hmm. of women. Yeah, women's right. bodies are objects, so yes. we can comment on them. We can right. pick them apart. We can right. judge them. Right. Men's bodies just do not have those same sort of objectification or yeah. sexualization because yeah. their power does not have to do with their bodies. Right. At oh, all right. necessarily. Right. Yes. And absolutely. you know. Even if you have a very attractive 
man, it's often sort of like, well, he's kind of dumb, you know, yes. well, you know what I mean? It, it's yes. not a source of power for him. Whereas no. with women, it can very much be a source of power and like, wow, she's so beautiful. She's, you know, a model. She's an actress. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. Because she's not going to become president. She's not going to become a CEO. Right. So let's focus on her body. Right. Or if a man is good look or has a good body, it's like all of that end. Yes. It, like the bonus. Whereas for us, yeah. it's the... It's you can't even get out of the gates without yeah. that. You know. It's like George Clooney's girlfriend. Yeah. When George Clooney oh. was, is he married to her now? Amal. I've lost Amal. Her. Yes. 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 Mm-hmm. And especially early on, it would be like, wow, look at that beautiful woman. It's like, she's a human rights lawyer. Yeah. Like, yeah. They're like, um, and she's smart, I think. And like, she's like they're surprised. So yeah, but it took a long time for people to sort of start talking about that part of it. It's like, well, yeah. she's, she's she's tall and stunning and Mm-hmm. And just like and that's all anyone, yeah. Knows. And just like, oh, look at the new beautiful young woman that George Clooney has on his arm, and it's like uh, she's an international human rights lawyer. Yeah, yeah. Right? <laughs> she's got him. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. So one of one of our side interests on this podcast is astrology, yeah. as I had mentioned before, and uh, I was wondering about your sign. Yes, and I, I know a little bit that. Pisces, Gemini, Libra are generally speaking more susceptible to depression, but I also kind of sense some water and cardinal qualities. So I, so I'm dying to know basically. And the whole time I was reading it, I was dying to know like, what, what is your sign? What do you know about your chart? And do you relate to any of it? I'm a Capricorn. Okay. I'm a Capricorn. Wait, you're a Capricorn, Kate? No, but we just, no. I'm a Leo and she's an Aries, so we are both fire signs. But we just interviewed an author who was a Capricorn. That's right. And But I'm a Capricorn moon. Oh, that's right. Oh, and I now should just know. Now I'm going to know if I, because both of you, Mm -hmm. it was Christina Baker Klein, and and Mm -hmm. both of you, I was like, I felt such a deep need to know. And I think right. that must be my Capricorn. Because it's your mood. inner, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yes. I'm a I'm a Capricorn okay. with I'm a Leo rising and a Taurus <gasps> moon. Oh my goodness! Oh my gosh! Oh, that's interesting. Oh, I see the Leo rising definitely. Yes. How you project to the outside? Yes. yes, yes. That's so true. Yes. Okay, I'm Leo moon and Leo sun. So I'm like, I'm I'm like all Leo, though I am Libra, Libra. rising. So Libra I, rising. I present yes. a little differently, but gotcha. yes, like and I'm Aries sun and Aries rising. So oh, I present yeah. the same way, but I have this Capricorn moon, which totally makes sense because I'm so very often like in turmoil, my yeah. outer and my inner because Capricorn, as you know, is very grounded, very strong, very grounded. Yeah, and mm-hmm. but and very very certain. resilient. Yes, yes. yes. Go out and go, always yes. go. That I will say that does work with my Aries because Aries are yeah. love change, and so resilience is sort of easy for them. But mm-hmm. there are so many things about the Capricorn that is so directly against my Aries sun sign. <laughs> so I'm like constantly in turmoil, but. But yeah, it's just a little kind of uh, pet project of ours. We've oh, been yeah. keeping tally of all of, of all of our authors and creators and, and what signs they are. Oh yeah, no, it's funny. So this is not mentioned in the book, but the teacher had the same birthday as my father. Oh, so they were also both Capricorns. Oh wow, yeah, wow. So 
it's strange. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's oh. strange. And then actually my, uh, okay. So my father was a Capricorn. The teacher was a Capricorn with the same birthday as my father. And then the guy in college who I started dating, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. he also had the same birthday as my father and the teacher and was also a Capricorn. Okay, yes. I don't know if maybe no. we should avoid Capricorns going for <laughs> <No. laughs> like, It was just I mean, like this two years where I was like, whoa, like yeah. lots of Capricorn men. Yeah. Wow. Very strange. Well, and of course, my father's still, obviously, he's still my yes. dad. So yeah. he's still yes. that other Capricorn. But true. You know, yes. Obviously. <laughs> yes. Oh, my gosh. And Christina yeah. Baker Klein is married to a Capricorn. I don't know. It's not a stay That's away right. from Capricorns. It's a right. trust yourself and you know the good ones and the bad ones. Because yeah. just yes. like anything else, there are good Capricorns and there are bad Capricorns. Oh, of course. Of course. I mean, we are we really resilient, but we can also be very stubborn. We can be control freaks. We can be, you know. Oh, yes, I do know. (laughs) I like to think that my Taurus moon and my Leo sort of balance those. Yes, I do. I do think that's right. I can be very, Capricorns are, can be very rebellious. Mm. They can be very sort of like, let's push against rules and bars and let's like make something Mm. better. I think that's very much me I think I can be very stubborn yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. as is my father so we can you know go at it because yes. um, you know, we're both very stubborn Capricorns right, right. Um, and structured yep yeah but I mean you know I'm the editor-in-chief of a literary journal so that works that's for very you. Capricorn yes I yes. teach that's very Capricorn absolutely. Um, absolutely but I like to think that my Leo rising helps make me a bit warm and fuzzy yes. warm and fuzzier on the outside and right, helps right. me sort of want to I want to connect yes. you know I want to lead in sort of love yes I think right. and then the Taurus makes me very grounded and very sort of like emotional and empathetic so yes comfort yes this is yeah. a good combo oh, no. good combo yes. so, you know all yeah. of them are good combos if you know how to work with them and that yes. for me that for me was the hardest part is I yeah. was always fighting against that Capricorn yep. side and I'll tell you that's a silver lining of this pandemic for me is I needed more structure in my life just because all of a sudden everything was happening under one oh, roof. Yeah. like working I have kids like Everything was happening under one roof mm-hmm. and I needed structure. And yeah. I that's when I finally started to embrace. When everything first fell apart for me, you yeah. know, like, mm-hmm. I mean, back in March when it fell apart for sure. all of us, yeah. I was like, what? Yeah. I do? Like, yeah. I was yeah. a mess because yeah. I was, you know, I was just like bopping around my, my apartment right? with the cats being like, what do we do? What yes, happened? Yes. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, I thrive under structure. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and Aries don't. Structure. Aries mm-hmm. don't. Aries feel yeah. so I mean, you you give Aries like a teeny bit of structure and they're like, What is this? Get out oh, yeah. of here. Yeah. You know, like, why <laughs> are you holding me back? <laughs> yeah. 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 No, I work I know that I work really well with Virgos. Mm. Um, my best friend and the uh, managing editor of Pigeon Pages, she's a Virgo. Yeah. They're so organized. Oh yeah. And like yes. like yeah. Yep. Raven yeah. is a Virgo. She's one of my good friends. Um, yeah. I have mm-hmm. so many, actually, like, I have so many friends who are late Leos and early Virgos. It's just yeah. like birthday season yes. in my life. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I literally have, I think, like six friends who in the past few weeks and in the next two have right. a birthday. Right. 
Right. But like all of my close friends are late Leos, Virgos. My mother's a Scorpio. Okay. Ooh. Yeah, she's a Scorpio. Yeah. She's very Scorpio. Yeah. It's funny. My father was a Scorpio. Yikes. Yeah, no, I yeah. know. And we we had not had a single author or even any of the creators from our regular episodes because we do track it. Like she said, we had no Scorpios until, until the other day. Oh. We finally had one. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. yeah. Yeah. Yeah, my mother is such a Scorpio. I, the, so like... Here's a great, very short Scorpio example. I love it. So I was getting a new phone and, you know, just like upping my iPhone. It's still not a, it's still not a fancy iPhone, but it was slightly fancier. It's yes. like an eight now. That's I don't great. know. Oh my gosh. That's um, great. So like I went to the Sprint store to like have it override, whatever store it is to like have them like transfer things. Yeah. And mm-hmm. the guy was like, okay, well, it's going to be a $25 fee. And my mom's right next. She was like, what? Why, why is it a fee? Like, just like, <laughs> like goes right in. And I'm yes, like, strike. Oh, yes, right. like the whole like strike. And I'm like, oh, it's okay. he's like, oh, well, well, we can, you know, we can wave it. She's like, well, you better. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then she's just like, I mean, that is my mother in a nutshell. She's yeah. also the person at, she works, she's a deputy director of a big nonprofit. Mm-hmm. She's also the person who does all the firing at her job. Ah. Wow. And she's always, her entire career, she's always been the person who does the firing. And I don't mind firing people either. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, it's got to happen. Right. Yeah. (laughs) See, I see it as like for the greater good. I'm like, I'm not like, okay, it serves all of us. You're not helping. I think I come from it for more like empathetic. Yes. Yes. Scorpios kind of enjoy it. Yes. Yeah. 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 It's funny. but you know, I mean, you obviously know a lot about astrology or it, it, your rising sign, your moon sign, whatever. So, yeah. how did like when when did you develop? Is this an interest for you, or you just? It's always been an interest. Yeah. When I was in high school, I especially like when I was a little bit younger in high school, I was a little when I was one of those like slightly witchy girls, mm-hmm. you know, oh, slightly witchy. Uh, just ooh. so you know, look I, out. Yes. <laughs> Like, honestly, like my goal in this next year, like now that the book is done and it's like, okay, I have some like room in my life, mm-hmm. in my head, I really want to like lean into my witchy urges. Oh, yes. I'm good friends with Lisa Marie Basile. She's the editor in chief of Luna Luna. She wrote these two amazing books okay. about um, writing and rituals. And oh, God, one of them is called The Magical Grimoire. Okay. And um, she's just so fantastic and I love her and I love her books. And yeah, I really want to like embrace my witchy side. Oh, I love it. And how I, how will you do this? Will come this out. Sounds... Yes, we'll come out from yeah. that. Well, like, what is... you know, my friend, my, my best Virgo friend got me that like big, this like big like book on like witchcraft through the ages. I don't know exactly what's going to come out, but I sort of want to just try to, again, I think it's also like the Taurus like grounding. It's like, okay, Allison, you need to like create a safe space for yourself, a sacred, you know, sacred safe place. And, you know, I have crystals all over my, I have like a whole like little thing of crystals like right next to here. Have you ever had your astrological chart read? Have you ever had talk to an astrologer. I just did this recently. So I'm, it seems like something you might like. I've never had it done professionally, but I would okay. really like to. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's I, so interesting. Well, let I me tell you, tell if you. you want to bridge the gap, mm-hmm. I highly recommend you were born oh, yeah. for this. Yes. Yes, yeah. yes. Yes. I have it. Oh my okay. God. I love Chani. Yes. Yeah. Chani is the best. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Oh, and have you read Astro Poets? 
No. No. What? Okay. So okay. Astro Poets is these two poets. Yeah, wait, they were at Dorothea Lasky. They were at Catapults Don't Write Alone yes. last year. And that's right, I completely forgot. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes, Dorothy and Dimitri, and yeah. it's just such a wonderful book. I highly recommend that one. It's great. Okay. And also the Astro Poets on Twitter. They have yes. great, yes. great you know, your little horoscope for the week. They do a great job. I love oh, that. I love this. Yeah. We have so many suggestions now throughout I this. I don't know how to do tarot, but yeah. I love getting my cards read. Oh, I've never Oh, so that. you do that. Okay. I don't See, know I've how to do that. it, right. but I love getting right. my cards right. read. And I I've think, I think that's it. really illuminative. Yes. Okay. Can then you would definitely free? like the astrological readings, like the birth chart too, if I you really- like... Yeah, I know. Yeah. And I just haven't tried the tarot cards. I've tried the psychic, the energy mm-hmm. healer and the astrologer, but I haven't, I can add the tarot cards yeah. too to my list. I mean, yeah, you know, you got to do what you got to do. Yes. Kate likes so. to go see these people. I like to try to be these people. Yes. So <laughs> well, that's go. funny. Yeah, that's right. that's I know. Yeah. Yes. yes. Yeah. But totally. that's the witchiness too. But you after I got my reading, Corinne started like yeah. basically like checking teaching herself yes. how to read it and then like cross-checking. Yes. Like, I mean, she's she would rather because teach herself. Because a lot of it's interpretation, right? Oh, yeah. totally. And so I was like, oh, I see what, what he sees here and I can interpret it that way. Totally, he's on point. Mm-hmm. And then also I can interpret it this way and tell yeah. you this too. And I could kind of fill out the picture a little more oh yeah and because she knows me versus the person who's giving me the reading so of course yeah Yeah. oh that's exciting yeah Yeah. Yeah. there's this cute little like spiritual shop right just a couple blocks away from me in jersey city so when i was at one point when i was like really struggling with the book and i was like i can't do this i -hmm. went there and the guy was like okay buy this candle and it's like just a regular like brown candle like just in like a little thing and he's like okay this is going to be your power candle like whenever you've got a whenever you've got to work you light the candle you let it do its job and i swear oh huge difference huge difference yeah it's like my little amazing apparently which he also said he was like he was like witches love witches love a brown candle oh my god i love it all right, Corinne, I'm, I'm going to find you a brown candle. I'm continuing on my journey. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Allison. This has been such a delightful chat. Oh, of course. Of um, course. This was so much fun. Tell everybody oh. where we can find you. Being Lolita is out now, but how about you? Social media, website, anything you'd like to share? I am on Twitter at Literary T Swift. Oh, <laughs> my that God. is my Twitter oh. name. Love. And I can't um, believe I'm, we just missed I know, all of that opportunity. I know. Literary T Swift. And on oh. Instagram, I'm at Allison Wood. Allison is spelled kind of funny, A L I S S O N. And then my website is just allisonwood.com. Right. So, yeah. Literary T Swift. Wow. I know. We, yeah. we, we, we did an entire podcast on, on her folklore album. <gasps> um, and yeah. her documentary. And the, yeah, and her documentary, Miss Americana. Yeah, wow. I mean, she is a she's a female storyteller. She, we don't we we don't have to be confined to books, movies, and TV shows. We're like T Swift counts. For, yeah, she's in. for her oh, we go totally. we go into music. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. It's funny. Yeah. I've had that handle for such a long time, and when I first got it, it was sort of me being like, "Ha ha, Taylor Swift." This right. was like I don't know, close to ten years ago, yeah. probably when she was you know 
in her early albums where it was all about like boys you right. know it was a lot about Romeo like Juliet and yeah, yeah exactly yeah. you know she wears short skirts I wear sneakers yes you know mm-hmm. yes and look um she's come with that narrative yeah uh-huh. so at first it was sort of like tongue-in-cheek like snarky mm-hmm. but now I'm like yeah I'm a literary T Swift <laughs> like I'm it. a I'm a powerful feminist icon. Yes. So now it's a little bit more of an aspirational reach, but it's just funny. Well, thank you so much, Allison. This was great. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. This has been Pop Fiction Women with Corinne and Kate. If you enjoyed this show, please tell the complicated women in your life. And the men who love them. Yes, tell them to listen. And then to follow on Spotify or review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And of course, share on social media. Tag us with your favorite books, TV shows, and movies starring complicated women on Facebook and Instagram at Pop Fiction Women or on Twitter at Pop underscore women. For more coverage of the women you love or to find out if you qualify as a complicated woman, go to popfictionwomen.com. And keep it complicated.